Welcome to the latest episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery, a multimedia production designed to spread the latest knowledge freely. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Alex Kassar, Alex Gibbons, and myself, Ray Hankey. Does your head spin when you think about neuroblastoma, low, intermediate, high risk, and how the management changes for each? Join us as we break down this complex subject with pediatric oncology experts from around the country. Welcome to Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. This is Todd Ponsky recording live from Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And today we're going to be talking about a topic that I don't know much about. And we get to hear the real experts tell me about what's new in neuroblastoma. Neuroblastoma is a, a common problem that we all deal with. And it seems like the, the way to manage this is changing day by day. So we finally got some experts to put some clarity on this. First, I'd like to introduce Dr. Dan Von Allman, who is the Surgeon-in-Chief here at Cincinnati Children's Hospital and is uh, our expert when it comes to neuroblastoma. We also have Dr. Erica Newman, who is uh, at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Michigan, and she has a clinical focus on uh, oncology. And finally, we have Dr. Tony Sandler, who is the Surgeon-in-Chief at Children's National Medical Center, and he also uh, has a focus in oncology and neuroblastoma. Let's dive right in. We're going to, just like we always do, we'll pick some cases that are pretty common and sort of hit on some of the, the, the nuances of the disease. Dan, you're in clinic and you are seeing a prenatal consultation with a woman that has a 26-week fetus that has a prenatal diagnosis of a left-sided suprarenal mass. Otherwise, the ultrasound is normal. What do you do with that? What is your differential diagnosis with a left-sided suprarenal mass? Uh, the most common things we think about first would be an adrenal hemorrhage. That's more common if there's some history of stress to the fetus or something like that, but certainly that's one of the more common things that we think about. And then obviously, if it's solid or cystic mass, you also have to consider the possibility of a neuroblastoma. The other differential diagnoses include things like uh, pulmonary sequestration, which can occur below the diaphragm, mm -hmm. uh, as well as potentially a renal anomaly that's been misdiagnosed as a suprarenal mass. So, Erica, what do you tell the family now? So they come to you, they've got this super renal mass, you don't know what it is. How do you counsel them? So I mostly am quite reassuring at this stage. It's still a bit early. I think you said the patient was the 26-week gestation. Yes. Yeah, so it's a little early. We still have some time to go before delivery. And I don't really do anything before the delivery. I don't get any more studies. And when the baby is born... Then I'll ask the family if it's not born at our hospital. I'll ask the family to please get in touch with me. If it's here, I'll say, let me know when the baby's born, and I'll come up and meet the family and the, and the baby after the baby is born. I think it's important to reassure and help the mom understand that the priority during the pregnancy is the mom. And once the baby is born, then we'll learn more. And the first thing do we get more information once the baby is born. Tony, would you add anything else to that in your Consultation? Yeah, I agree very wholeheartedly with Erica and reassurance. I think often when we're doing these prenatal diagnoses, we get too carried away with the details of the disease and uh, we get parents all frightened about it. The other thing that I think is important to remember is to ask the family whether there's any familial history of neuroblastoma. I know it's very rare and it only occurs in about 1% of patients, but a familial history of neuroblastoma would help probably guide the diagnosis of a suprarenal mass in this mother. 
a great point. Okay, so you did that, Tony. Now what? Well, the, the obviously the, uh, the pregnancy should go along as expected. The mother should uh, have a normal uh, prenatal care. And then once the child is born, we start uh, doing some postnatal studies. And of course, the first one that you would do is examine the child, making sure that this is a otherwise healthy child that's asymptomatic. And if that is the case, then I'd probably start off with an ultrasound of the child's abdomen. The child is born at 38 weeks. You would get the ultrasound. Um, would you get any CT scan, other uh, MRI, or any other axial imaging, Tony? Uh, I wouldn't unless um, the urine catecholamines are, are high and unless you're concerned about something unusual. If it's depending on the size of the lesion, if it's probably, let's, let's for argument's sake, call it a three centimeter lesion, I would probably just follow it with ultrasounds and urine catecholamines. If the catecholamines are high, then one, we can start discussing whether perhaps an MIBG would be worthwhile. And that would be my next step if I was going to work this up further. I would agree completely with Tony. I think that the, you know, the ultrasonographers and the radiologists are actually quite good at, at identifying uh, what looks to them like a adrenal hemorrhage. And mm -hmm. you can, while you can't be sure, uh, it certainly helps to get the urine catecholamines to uh, direct the counseling of the parents one way or the other. If the urine catecholamines are high, then you're going to want to counsel the parents about potentially more likely neuroblastoma. But if they're normal and the ultrasonographer is convinced that this is an adrenal hemorrhage, uh, you can really be very reassuring, which doesn't mean you shouldn't follow it, but you can be, um, you can be more definitive with the family about the risk of a tumor. So I'm going to repeat what I hear so far up to this point. Reassurance during the fetal period. All you need to get is the ultrasound. After they're born, you get an, a follow-up ultrasound postnatally and urine catecholamines. Maybe if those are elevated, you would get an MIBG, but no need for a CAT scan at this point. Any uh, need for a bone marrow biopsy? You know, the, the only time I would do a bone marrow biopsy is if the MIBG is positive showing bone metastases then I think it's worthwhile doing a biopsy because at that point you may want to determine whether this is an NMIC amplified uh, neuroblastoma, which in all reality in these prenatal diagnoses is extremely, extremely rare. At this point, you have an ultrasound and urine catecholamines that are elevated. Tell me about the MIBG scan. What are you looking for on the MIBG scan, Erica? I'm mostly looking to characterize the primary lesion and then also to understand if there are any other areas of disease. What are the more common areas for metastases? So in a neonate or in that perinatal phase, the most common areas would be liver, bone, skin, and lymph nodes. All right. So, Dan, you have an MIBG that lights up only at the suprarenal mass. Sure. Uh, do you observe or do you operate? So uh, that is a... A discussion you have to have with the family uh, because the uh, data from Jet Nocturne study would suggest that you can confidently observe these patients, uh, but you have to observe them carefully with uh, ultrasound studies looking for growth, but that many of these patients will actually be spared any surgery if you just watch. Uh, even if you have a by laboratory studies that confirm neuroblastoma with an MIBG and positive urine catecholamines. On the other hand, 
families are sometimes unwilling or uncomfortable uh, having a mass in their newborn and they want it out. But I would suggest that probably most, if counseled with the current data, would be willing to simply observe this. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think that Dr. Nocturne's study and very reassuring that, um, particularly in neonates with proper surveillance, that most of the children don't require surgery or chemotherapy. For the first year of life, there's a lot of imaging and monitoring that goes on, but um, most of these children can be spared surgery. I think one of the other things when you speak to the family, it's really important to reassure them that even if the mass increases in size and you take it out, it is likely to be a very, very low-risk tumor. So it's very uncommon to have a bad neuroblastoma. It's possible for yeah, sure it is. It, in a newborn, a newborn that you're watching yeah, right. with serial ultrasound studies and it begins to increase in size and you like to take it out, it's still likely to be a low-risk tumor. Okay. All right. Todd, if I can also take a shot at that, the, the number that I quote the families from that original study is that they, um, of the, I think it was 84 patients that they observed, 16 underwent resection for either growth or some uh, uh, other reason. In other words, the families didn't want to wait. And so that's about a 20% resection rate of those of ones that underwent observation. And of those patients, um, I think it was like about 98% had event-free survival and 100% had overall survival. So you're quoting a study that was done uh, with very good outcomes, and I think it's very reassuring for the families to hear that those data. Great. Agreed. Yeah. So how often do we check ultrasound and urine catecholamines, and for how long? So it's pretty intensive the first year. Um, they're getting them at birth, then at three weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks. And then as long as things are stable, then they get spaced out from there all the way to one year. And we stop at a year. Then a year, it becomes something more like every six months, after every six months, then a year. I think it's more than up to the oncologist how they would yeah. ordinarily do that. But I do think that if they're followed by the oncologist, they tend to be followed long term. Uh, not long term, but they, they're followed for probably more than a year. Mm -hmm. um, many of the lesions resolve. So they're gone. And once they're gone, then you get some ultrasounds after that to make sure they're gone. The only caution I would raise is that we had a case of a child who presented with exactly the scenario was observed. The adrenal mass went away and age, at age three, she presented with widely metastatic high-risk neuroblastoma. Wow. So that's a cautionary tale, but I, I still think that the overall outcomes are really, really good, and you should just observe these. Yeah, and that is a very interesting case. Um, you know, I, that does actually bring caution to our general approach to managing these. The other thing that I'm always um, a little bit cautious about, I will say, is when I'm counseling the patients and as we're getting through this first year, it's always a little bit um, unclear to the families because we don't have a biopsy. And really what we're going by is how the lesion looks on the ultrasound and on the CT scan and the catecholamines, but you don't know really what the tissue diagnosis is until we, in, when and if we take the mass out. And so I'm always cautious in saying, by all the data we have, it looks like a neuroblastoma, but I will say the last one of these that I had at the 12-month scan just got bigger. And we took it out, and it was a, ended up being a sequestration. And sure. so I was 
glad that we had kind of prepped the family that this is most likely neuroblastoma, but it could be something else. Um, because after going a year thinking your baby has a neuroblastoma and then you end up with pulmonary sequestration that was below the diaphragm, you know, we just, it, it, I, I think it's just important to make sure that we are very reassuring to the family that based on all the information we have, this is what this probably is, but that we have to have some level of uncertainty because we, we don't biopsy these kids. So the only thing that I would discuss is when does one operate? And I'm not exactly sure what the size is. I've always used the five centimeter size as an indicator for surgery, but I'm not sure. Um, that is sort of my cutoff. If it's obviously getting smaller, I wouldn't operate. If it's getting bigger, I do operate. But I'm not sure what my other colleagues on this esteemed panel, <laughs> what size they use. I, I would agree with you, uh, Tony. I think that if the mass, first of all, if it's increasing in size, then that in and of itself is concerning. And there are specific criteria, but I, once a mass gets to be five centimeters, then I, I personally would be recommending to the family that we take it out. I agree with that. And then as we're surveying, I use the original criteria of, you know, if it goes increases in more than 50% volume, and then the other thing we look at are the urine catecholamines and uh, a 50% increase in either the BMA or HBA would prompt us to start thinking more about surgery. That's a great point, Erica. That's, I think it's important that you're not just doing ultrasounds, you're continuing to monitor uh, urine catecholamines. So uh, Dan and I just came up with the same exact question at the same exact time. So Erica, if you do decide to remove it, would you do it laparoscopic or open? Yeah, I think laparoscopic, particularly if it's less than six centimeters, I think it's worth a shot to put a scope in and take a look. Um, I was glad we were able to do that for this baby. I think that sequestration ended up being about three and a half centimeters, and it came out very nicely with the laparoscope. The child went home the next day. Do you need to do any lymph node sampling? I don't think lymph nodes give us any more information than we already have in neuroblastoma from the cross-sectional imaging. I agree completely. Uh, unlike Wilms tumor, the lymph node status of neuroblastoma um, is not as important in the change of therapy. The biology of the neuroblastoma, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, is more important than lymph node status. Erica, let's say the child has skin lesions and liver mets. Now what? Now things get a little different. This is what we're calling now stage M, the O stage 4S. And I would say I'm still reassuring at this point with the family. The biology of these tumors tends to still be good. These aren't bad neuroblastomas. There is a scenario where things could get bad, and that's if the liver is filled um, and engorged with tumor. What, what exactly can go wrong when the child has a liver full of tumor? The most common thing that we worry about is as the mass, it's the mass effect of the tumor in the liver, which can be really dramatic and causes respiratory compromise. And that's the problem that the a newborn would face is increasing uh, ventilatory requirements and uh, inability to ventilate once the tumor gets large enough. So how do we treat these, these children? If they're not in any distress, they're treated with my favorite 
protocol, which is aggressive observation. That is, you don't necessarily have to uh, you don't necessarily have to do anything other than watch them. But once they begin to get in trouble, then you certainly want to have tissue and make sure that it is in fact MS and not a high risk tumor. And you can treat them with either chemotherapy or radiation if you get to it early enough. If the child acutely decompensates, then doing a decompressive laparotomy is also described as a potential uh, emergent therapy for kids who have uh, respiratory compromise. So you, you mentioned if we have tissues. So it is not a requirement to biopsy even the skin lesions in these children? I think that in most cases, and I'd be interested to hear what, what Erica and Tony say, we, want, we would get tissue to okay. confirm the diagnosis and get some biologic information. Yeah, I think uh, if you have the classic findings with uh, high urine, uh, epinephrine or norepinephrine or uh, catecholamine, and you have the blue blebs on the skin uh, with a liver with liver metastases and a uh, adrenal mass, I don't think you really even have to biopsy that kid. However, if you're taking the kid to do something radical like a laparotomy uh, to to place a silo to decompress the abdomen, then I would certainly biopsy the easiest lesion. I'm not sure I would biopsy the liver uh, because once you get bleeding in a in a newborn liver, it's very hard to control. So I would take a, a, another lesion other than the liver unless the liver is the easiest to get to. But yeah, I completely agree with Dan. It's a observation. I haven't in my career had to open an abdomen and place a, a liver in a bag or anything like that. I agree. Um, I know that our oncologists have often asked us to do a biopsy, and they like to get that because if, in the rare instance, the MCN is amplified, it changes them then from MS to M. And so for that, we are sometimes faced with, should we be going into the abdomen? If we can avoid, particularly in neonates, going into the abdomen for a biopsy, I think we can decrease the risk of that abdominal compartment syndrome postoperatively. So, Erica, Tony, let's talk about another case or another child that we, that we oftentimes see. And this is a three-year-old who presents with a large central abdominal mass, you know, the classic history grandma noticed in the tub giving the child a bath. And they come in uh, with this large abdominal mass, otherwise healthy child. How would you work that kid up? Erica, what's your approach? First, obviously, we do a good history and physical exam, finding out if the child has had any other illnesses, any family history, past medical history. Uh, I saw a child a day that had diarrhea. I thought that was interesting because we remember I've always read that you can get, you know, VIP secretion and, and severe diarrhea from neuroblastoma, but I had not seen that, and I always ask about that. And then with respect to trying to understand more about the mass, I'll typically start with an ultrasound. Um, I get an ultrasound be to, to see if I can get a clue on whether this is a solid or a cystic mass. If it's solid, then most likely we would then move on to cross-sectional imaging. Um, and I usually get a CT scan with PO and IV contrast just because I'm more comfortable reading a CT scan. While we're waiting on the CT scan and, and the contrast, we'll get some blood work. Uh, routine blood work is, you know, CBC, a comprehensive panel. Um, I'll usually get um, tack on uh, amylase lipase LDH and just a standard blood work that we would be getting for anyone that 
would have some um, abdominal masses. And so um, we've been sent the urine catecholamine, and I'd wait and see what, what all that showed. Great. Um, Tony, anything you would add to that initial evaluation? No, I agree completely. Um, you know, when you're initially seeing a child with an abdominal mass and you're not sure what it is, I think it's very reasonable to go ahead and get an ultrasound. Uh, if it turns out to be Wilms tumor, the ultrasound's already done because you want to see if there's any venous extension of the tumor. And as Erica clearly stated, that it, you also want to be able to tell whether this is a cystic or solid mass. Yeah, that venous extension thing for the Wilms is a great point. I that's uh, that's a great reason to get the ultrasound. But so you get a CT scan and it shows a big 10 centimeter mass that encases the aorta and the celiac axis, microcalcifications, more solid than cystic. Now what would you do? Uh, Tony, what's your group's workup? So Dan, what you're describing uh, is an L2 international neuroblastoma risk group uh, classification of the local tumor. So this is obviously going to need necessitate a complete workup, and obviously the oncologists now get involved and are, are really key to the, the further workup, which includes uh, uh, probably a bone marrow, um, the, the CT scan already been done, you're getting a technetium scan or MIBG scan. Um, I also like a CT scan because I can read it better. An MRI is certainly an option. You also want a chest CT because you want to rule out metastases. Uh, and then also a head CT can be indicated if there's any clinical symptoms that the patients may have. So now you're talking about the staging of the disease. And then, of course, the final aspect to staging the disease is getting a biopsy uh, for pathology and, and, of course, a biology in the case of neuroblastoma. So how about PET scans? Do, you, do either of you guys get PET scans? Our guys are very fond of PET scans. We're also very fond of PET scans, but the question is for the initial workup, a PET scan is not going to be my workup. An MIBG scan will be. And I'm not sure a PET scan will have any benefit over an MIBG scan in neuroblastoma. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, I think, I think you're right. I agree with you. I think the rationale that's often given is that 10% of neuroblastomas are not MIBG avid. So potentially they would be PET avid, even though they're not MIBG avid, and you might also pick up uh, metastases that way. So I agree with you. It's sort of, uh, we get them and we get lots of them, but, um, but it may or may not be necessary, especially if it's MIBG avid, then you have a study that you need to not only make the diagnosis and identify METs, but also to follow it, I think. Yeah, and I think you outlined that clearly. If it's, certainly if it's 10%, and your MIBG is negative, then I would agree a PET, I wouldn't argue against a PET scan. Erica, how about you? Do you guys get them? No, we don't get them. There are very few scenarios we get them where um, every now and then we we have a child where the primary lesion has been resected and there's a funny looking um, soft tissue area that is MIBG negative and we're trying to decide if this is a local recurrence or um, nothing or scar. And so they'll get a PET scan in a scenario like that. But that wouldn't be part of our routine initial diagnosis workup. Uh, Tony, you mentioned getting tissue, obviously, is the, sort of the key or final step in doing the staging. What do you think about the options for, for getting tissue? 
do you and, and Erica, do you, do you all do percutaneous biopsies? Do you do laparoscopic biopsies? Do you do open biopsies? Lots of different uh, ways to get tissue. So, uh, Erica, I'm sure you'll probably contradict me, but this is sort of my <laughs> approach. Um, I'm sort of old-fashioned in this way because I've been, you know, trained to get that size of tumor that can be biopsied uh, safely and that can uh, give the necessary tissue uh, for further studies and bio bio biology of the tumor. And so I've always done a retroperitoneal approach to a large mass and done an open biopsy. I am uh, a little reticent to do a transperitoneal approach and biopsy a big tumor uh, laparoscopically because I'm not sure I can control the bleeding as well as a retroperitoneal approach. You could do a percutaneous biopsy. You would have to do multiple uh, uh, percutaneous biopsies. Um, and I'm not sure um, the tissue collected is adequate for biology. So uh, people also say you can take bone marrow and you can get the NMIC amplification on bone marrow, but there's more to do than just NMIC. There's the ALK mutation to look for. There um, is, of course, uh, adequate biology for pathology. And, of course, you, um, you, know, you really do want uh, to look at the diploid status of the tumor as well. So right now, I am still doing open biopsies unless there's some reason that the child is very sick and they can get NMIC amplification of the bone marrow. That's been my strategy right now. Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, that's awesome. That's great. Can you explain to me what you mean when you say you do a retroperitoneal biopsy? Do you go in through the back? I don't go in through the back, but I go in through the most lateral part of my eventual incision, what I'm going to predict to explore the abdomen. And mm -hmm. that way, because the tumor is retroperitoneal and it's usually large and extensive and pushing the retroperitoneum up, I can go through a relatively posterior lateral approach, which is, which is retroperitoneal. And then um, to control the bleeding is a, is a nice discussion as well. I often will take a nice, healthy, big biopsy and then put pledgeted sutures uh, packed with Surgicel to stop the bleeding. These can bleed significantly. The good thing about being retroperitoneal is you've compressed that area. It's got nowhere to expand, even if it does bleed, as opposed to a transperitoneal approach. That's a great technique. I like that technique. I, I I would have to say when I do an open biopsy, I tend to go, I, I haven't worried so much about whether I was retroperitoneal or not. And I agree with you, they can be dramatic in their bleeding. And uh, my management is usually uh, putting some gel phone and thrombin in there and waiting you know, with pressure and just wait. And it stops. It always stops. But it is a risk. And we have had patients who re-bled postoperatively. How about you, Erica? What's your approach? Well, I will say that at our hospital, we're shifting our practice a bit. Uh, probably about 80% of the patients will get a percutaneous biopsy up front. Now, I say that with the caveat that we've worked really hard to standardize our approach uh, with the pediatric surgeons and with the interventional radiologists and with our pathologists. And we've also, we're looking at this now within the COG surgeons. From what I can tell, probably about half of the children's hospitals are 
using percutaneous biopsy for masses suspicious for neuroblastoma. Um, what the literature has found and what our experience has been is that percutaneous biopsy is equivalent to open biopsy for a couple of things. One is you can make the diagnosis. It is equivalent with respect to being able to understand high risk versus low risk. And then the MICN amplification can be determined as well. Where percutaneous biopsy falls short is with determining LOH. LOH is important in the new staging and classification system. We need to know what 11Q is doing. And so that's where percutaneous biopsy has been failing. What our data is going to show is that there are things that we can do to increase the probability that you can get all of the biologic information that you need. So, for example, if you have a pathologist there looking at the specimen and assuring that the specimens and the cores that have been obtained are not necrotic, um, our pathologist actually does a frozen section on one portion of the core to assure that the, the tissue that's being obtained is viable tumor. We get up to 10 to 12 cores. So we found that the higher number uh, matters. We've also found that when they use a higher gauge needle, that could help as well. So putting all of that together, um, higher number of cores, standardizing the size needle you use, and then having the pathologist do sort of a live read will increase the probability that you're going to get all the biologic data we need from percutaneous biopsy. We think it's important because we know open biopsy is safe, and they're both safe. The kids that had open biopsy had a higher risk of getting a blood transfusion. They had higher narcotic use postoperatively, and they were admitted to the hospital more commonly. I don't think that we're ready to go go live, so to speak, with percutaneous biopsies. But I do think it's worth taking a closer look at how to optimize the technique and standardize the technique so that we can get all the information we need. The most important thing, obviously, is to get all the information we need so that the patients can be stratified pre-treatment. That's great information, Eric, and it's great that you guys are looking at it in an organized standardized fashion. You know, we have also transitioned, um, and I can't give you a percentage, but if if a patient's tumor is amenable, are, we have great interventional radiologists and they do the same sort of eight to 10 core biopsies that you uh, discussed. They can also embolize the tract on their way out, which I think helps to limit the bleeding issue. But we've not had a pathologist involved right up front, and I think that's a that's a great addition to make sure that you actually get the right answer. Erica, do they do the approach from a retroperitoneal position? We've done we've we've done both. Um, most of the time, it is retroperitoneal, right through the psoas, often it's from the back. It just depends on where they can get a good safe window. Right. It just right. seems like that's usually a good window, and it kind of takes the advantage of what Tony does, and that might be a great approach. So we just got tissue, and now this is the part I always get hung up on, which is the staging. So, Tony, can you go through with me the staging of neuroblastoma based on what are the different factors we look at, 
uh, and, and how do we determine the risk of the patient? So Todd, as you know, um, the staging is based on the age of the patient, the histologic category, the differentiation of the tumor, the MECAN status, uh, there's ploidy involved, uh, and then aberration of 11Q. And that really gives you an idea of the pretreatment, the pretreatment risk group, which is either very low, low, intermediate, or high. But it's, you can simplify it by looking at it in a, in a, in a very different way and not understanding all of the details because often you'll have to refer to a chart to do that. I sort of, I sort of think of it like imperforate anus and you think of it as there's different uh, ways of classifying imperforate anus. But for me, practically, there's high and there's low. Low imperforate anuses are going to do well. High imperforate anuses are not going to do well. And this is a similar entity. And I look at NMIC status because NMIC is an is a, uh, oncogene that has really been classically described for neuroblastoma. And it really puts neuroblastoma ahead of any of the other tumors in adults and in children, because it really gives you an idea of the biology of the tumor. And if NMIC is amplified, it is automatically high-risk disease, irrespective of any other categorization. If NMIC is non-amplified, most of them are either low or intermediate risk disease. You do get an occasional non-NMIC amplified which is a poorly uh, differentiated tumor. It's an older patient with metastatic disease, and it's obviously got diploid that may be high risk. But really, for someone who's not doing neuroblastoma all the time, look at NMIC amplification. It's either up, it's either amplified, or it's not amplified. And if it's amplified, it's high risk disease, period. That's great. That's great. I agree 100%. I would agree with that. The only thing I would add is that loss of heterozygosity at 11Q is the only other thing that would bump up an otherwise make a non-amplified patient to high risk. And so we see that 11Q loss is the, um, other, is the most common segmental chromosomal alteration. And so that's the, that's why it's so important that the original biopsy to get enough tissue so that in the, you know, 60 or 70% of patients where the MICN is non-amplified, that none of those kids have 11Q LOH because that would be a risk factor that could bump them up to high risk or higher or from low to intermediate at, at least. Agreed. You know, the, the loss of heterozygosity or 11Q aberration can be intermediate disease if NMIC is not amplified and it's a differentiating tumor. But getting out of the weeds, and I agree with you completely, Erica, um, I would say look at NMIC amplification and uh, LOH, and you have high-risk disease. And I just want to remind people that the difference in outcome is really based on the risk of disease. So intermediate and low risk has a very good outcome. High-risk NMIC amplification has a bad outcome on a not very good outcome. So I think that is the criteria uh, for the surgeon uh, in trying to understand the behavior of the disease. What about patient age? Age is important, but it becomes one of those other criteria that have okay. become important for biology of the disease. 
And it used to be 12 months, and now it's 18 months. Less than 18 months, better behavior, over 18 months, not uh, bad. But having said that, it still doesn't carry the weight of the biology of the disease as NMEC does. So if you have a patient that has non-amplified NMEC and metastatic disease, are they high or low risk? They can be either. Um, to be low risk and have a metastatic disease that is non-amplified, you have to have a hyperdiploid tumor, and that's where ploidy comes into, into, into the action. And that could be a low risk. If it's diploid and it's non-amplified and they're less than 18 months old, there would be intermediate risk. If they're greater than 18 months old, they have metastatic disease, they fall into the category of high-risk disease, even if they're not amplified. If they're less than 18 months old and they're amplified, they also fall into the high-risk category. So that's where age becomes important in the child who has metastatic disease. That's a great summary. So if we have this child now that we've we biopsied and and we have has a big central abdominal tumor encasing vessels and uh, the the biopsy comes back with with NMIC amplified in a three year old child. Um, can you uh, just tell people, uh, Erica, what's the what's the plan from there? What how would this child be um, treated at your institution? So I think. A couple things. One is the child would need some central access, teleport or Broviac. I don't know if this is a, a, an important detail, but how do you decide if a patient should get a Broviac or a port? Certainly in a case like this for a high-risk patient who's ultimately going to end up with a, a transplant as long as they respond, we would put in a double lumen external line, a double lumen central line as opposed to a port. We would do the same. Is there an age limit for how old or young a, a baby should be to get a port? So, Erica, we used to we used to put the line in just prior to doing a uh, biopsy or a section. We somewhat changed that a little bit, um, and of course, everyone has their own nuance. But if we do think it's a neuroblastoma, we first get tissue diagnosis, and then we put in, and then we select the line that we put in because those children who have NMIC amplification or high-risk disease, as we're describing in this case, need a double lumen port for bone marrow transplant. I mean, a double lumen uh, catheter for bone marrow transplant. Now, you could put in a double lumen port, and we do do that at the uh, family's preference. Usually, you're, if you have a high-risk neuroblastoma like or a tumor that looks like this, I actually will do it with one prep in the OR, so I put the line in first so I'm not messing with tumor. I put the line in first, towel that off, and then do the biopsy. But, yeah, but which if line it, are you putting in? I would yeah. put in a double lumen. Even if it might be non-NMIC amplified? Yeah, because it's just intermediate risks are very small proportion of the cases. So okay. it's playing the odds. I agree. So you potentially could put in a double lumen line that you don't need. But that, that is really, really uncommon. Tell me, I guess I need help understanding. When you, you see a mass, you have no idea if it's high or low risk because you haven't biopsied it yet. 
But in the patients we're describing, if a child comes in with multiple bone mets, not bone marrow, but if they bone have mets, mets I see. on the MIBG scan, Most, got it. and they have a big central abdominal mass, and they are catecholamines are, are high and such, the MIBG scan is positive. You, it is, and it's a three-year-old. It is unlikely that that's going to be lower intermediate risk. But if it's a non-metastatic mass, then you don't know. Then I would get tissue. And do the line after. You only put the line in if you're pretty sure it's high risk. Yeah. It's uncommon for us to, and that's why I was asking Tony, it is uncommon for us to take a child back to the operating room just for a line. We usually put it in at the time. Mm. We do, actually, we do marrows at the same time. So the child will go to the OR, get a line, a biopsy, and marrows. We'll do the, the marrows at the same time as well. Now, for Wilms tumor, of course, we do our line first and then take the kidney out or the tumor yeah. out. Yeah. But for neuroblastoma, the uh, interventionists have stopped putting the lines, and so that's how we're doing it right now. Which makes perfect sense. I mean, that, I guess... But, but, I th I, but I do agree with you, Dan. If it's a high risk, if it's most likely a high risk case, which 60% of these are, uh, it's probably very appropriate to play the uh, risk of the game and have a, a child who's three years old with uh, all the criteria that we've discussed. It's very reasonable to put in a double lumen port or, or double lumen catheter. So in terms of timing of surgery, you know, we've been through this in the, in the children's oncology group uh, with the timing of the control of the primary site and how many rounds of chemotherapy you give and whether more chemotherapy is helpful or harmful in terms of the uh, surgical resection. So the, the COG is usually, I think in the protocols, it's usually after cycle five. And we, in our center, we've moved that up, up to after cycle four. It would be great if you could do even potentially after cycle three, but that begins to conflict with cell harvesting for a, um, a stem cell transplant. When do you guys, when for in Michigan and in, in D.C., what's your timing of the primary tumor resection? I totally agree with you, Dan. We moved it up. Um, we really try and get the kids in um, between cycle three and four. And we, it, it's really rare if we go beyond four cycles. So typically what will happen is they'll get their induction chemotherapy and we're checking the scans after uh, cycle. Um, most of the time it's after cycle four. And that's really what we found to be the most ideal time to go um, for local control. I don't think we see much tumor shrinkage after four cycles. I think it was Dr. LaCaglia's, um study that actually looked see if there was any biologic or imaging differences in, in the tumors after four cycles of chemotherapy. I think things pretty things level out pretty pretty much. And so I don't think that there's any benefit to waiting um, and giving five and six cycles. And the other thing that we've that we talk about amongst our group here is that what we found is that sometimes after you know five or six cycles these tumors become more hard and have just a different texture and can perhaps make the operation a little more challenging. And so we really try and encourage our patients and oncologists to let's go ahead and explore for local control after after that fourth cycle. 
I agree. That paper from Michael Qualia looked at a sort of a heterogeneous group of tumors and showed that after cycle two or three, you don't really get much more change in volume. We actually looked specifically at our neuroblastoma patients uh, with that same uh, evaluation and found exactly the same thing. And I agree that after, when you start getting up to five or six plus cycles of chemotherapy, the tumor gets very fibrotic, and I think it makes the surgery actually more difficult. So um, if you have an isolated suprarenal mass with no evidence of metastases, would you just resect up front? Yes. All right, so you're ready for surgery, and it is a completely encasing the central vessels. Dan, how do you approach that patient? So our approach has been an aggressive approach, and our goal uh, that we typically shoot for is to take out more than 90% of the tumor mass. And the rationale for that is uh, two studies, uh, one from the Children's Oncology Group, a high-risk study uh, in which we assessed degree of tumor resection uh, and correlated that with survival. And there were only, I can't recall the exact number, 245 patients or something in the study. And there was a statistically significant improvement in event-free survival, but not overall survival. So you could argue that potentially that doesn't change the overall survival. However, there was a much larger study that is actually, I don't believe, still has never been published that was presented at a neuroblastoma meeting several years ago from the European neuroblastoma group in which it was a much larger data set. I think they had close to 1,000 cases. And they showed not only with the same criteria, essentially greater than 90% resection, demonstrated improvement in event-free survival and overall survival. So our goal is to attempt a greater than 90% resection. And the data from multiple studies looking at this are that you can achieve that in about 70% of patients. Tony? So, um, firstly, um, as far as the cycles to therapy, you know, stem cell harvest in these high-risk neuroblastomas is usually after the second cycle. So I do agree with you both that around about the fourth or fifth cycle, we will do our resection. We do remember that a high-risk neuroblastoma actually responds really nicely to chemotherapy, and you can get very good response rates, and that's probably because of its highly proliferative rate and its responsiveness to the chemotherapeutic agents. Having said that, a lot of the, the tumors that we approach are not completely resectable. And what you're leaving behind is fibrous scar tissue along vessels and along the, the structures within the abdomen. It's not the local disease that usually is the cause of demise in these patients. It's the occurrence of metastases. And in fact, if you look at it, there was a recent publication from the German group that looked at the European data and actually stated uh, unequivocally that the amount of resection of local disease does not make a difference. So, and that came out about six months, uh, six months ago, I believe. So you can find any data in the literature to prove the point that you want to make. And I think neuroblastoma and high-risk disease classically defines that statement. I think, in summary, that if you can take out as much tumor as possible, you should take it out. But more importantly, you should do it with a safe outcome and a safe technique. So if you're going to be uh, taking out uh, 
the, the retroperitoneal lymphatics with a significant lymphatic leak, or you're going to be removing blood vessels and doing revascularizations, I think it's the wrong thing to do. I think the bottom line is patients don't die of local disease. They die of systemic disease in neuroblastoma, and you should take out as much tumor as possible without risking bad outcomes. Tony, I actually agree with that 100%, and I, I, I would subscribe to exactly that same philosophy. I think the data shows that you get great local control with, with the combination of radiation and aggressive surgery, but the patients still have metastatic disease. And so if there is an improvement in survival, it's really hard. It's, it must be so incremental that it's hard to even demonstrate that despite multiple studies showing uh, evidence on both sides of the fence. Uh, and I think that it's, it's ultimately whether you can control the distant disease that's going to determine the child's outcome. I can't believe you guys are agreeing. We were hoping for like a, a battle of the century here. Tony, if they are encasing the vessels, would you go in and resect relative amount of the tumor for debulking, but not just get too close to skeletonize the vessels? Is that the difference between you and Dan? I'm trying to understand where you two disagree. Well, that, that's a very good point because, you know, it, it depends how you describe your surgery. I mean, I think surgeons like to believe they're taking out all the disease, uh, but I don't believe I am, even if I'm taking an aggressive approach to the surgery. And I, I think one of the uh, teaching points here is I always like to identify normal anatomy, let's say normal blood vessel, and track the normal blood vessel to try to take out the abnormal. But I don't want to risk injuring the, the blood vessel if I can't take it out. In fact, yesterday, I did an open book uh, for a procedure for an uh, eight-month-old who had a neuroblastoma that wasn't responding to chemotherapy. But the subclavian artery was diving uh, right through the tumor, and I couldn't identify where it, which direction it was going. And I didn't want to damage the subclavian artery. So I stopped, and I don't know if this is high risk or low risk. They treated it because the uh, metanephrines were high in the urine. They started with chemotherapy, and the child didn't respond to chemotherapy. So instead, they asked me to do a biopsy. As I said, instead of doing a biopsy, I will basically do a trapdoor approach and try and resect the tumor. But I think this child will end up being intermediate stage, and I'm glad I didn't try to get too clever, and I'm glad I backed off and resected about 50% of the tumor because I suspect that it's going to make no difference to the outcome of the patient. So to answer your question, I, I think you've got to just be somewhat conservative in avoiding damage to major vascular structures and dealing with the consequences of those complications. So, you know, there is no definition of what more than 90% resection is or what 80% resection is because you don't know exactly what you're leaving behind. The bottom line is I think Dan and I both agree that take out as much as possible and leave behind unfettered vasculature uh, or, or, or uh, neural tissue. And I think that's the only thing that I try and do. I, I Again, I would agree with you. I, I think, first of all, your description of starting with normal vessels, and that's what I always work with the residents on, is start 
away from the tumor, find the normal vasculature, and then track it up so that you can stay right on the adventitia because theoretically neuroblastoma doesn't invade the actual vessel, although I have seen that. And I agree, you should take out what is what, is, what you think is safe, and that that's impossible to draw a criteria for that. That comes with uh, experience and, and uh, probably bad experience, but... Um, <laughs> It's just doing the cases enough to, to know if it's coming off the vessels easily, I keep going. If it's not, then I stop. And I, the other thing that, that throws a wrench into this whole argument is I have twice uh, looked at the correlation between what the surgeon's op note says and what the post-operative imaging says mm -hmm. with regard to the degree of resection. <clears throat> and the answer is... There is zero correlation, zero. There is absolutely no correlation between the findings on post-op imaging and the findings that are reported in the op note. So then it's a question of, well, who do you believe is uh, has the right answer? So I would agree with you, Tony. I think surgeons will frequently overestimate the amount of resection that they've been able to achieve. One thing we try to teach the residents is that with neuroblastoma surgery, there's no reason to cause disability. So if you are doing anything that might have the patient be disabled afterwards, so that that might be another way to look at it. So if it's you know we don't we try not to do a nephrectomy if the if you can't peel it off the renal vessels, then you do do your best and 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 stop there or um, you know lesions. Um, in the chest, I saw one today that might involve the brachial plexus. And so that a mass like that, uh, you know, should give us pause to think, you know, how aggressive we want to be um, with, with surgery. So I think for keeping safety, avoiding disability, at the same time balancing that with trying to get a 90% resection is sort of the complexity of, of planning the, the local control operation. I think that's a really important point about the kidney. Um, because the approach has been intensification of chemotherapy to try to help these patients. And if you take a kidney out, then they have to reduce their doses. So uh, trying to preserve renal function is, is, has always been a priority. So, you know, what are the new breakthroughs in neuroblastoma? And obviously, it's not a, a, uh, the surgery that we do. Um, as Dan and I uh, spoke uh, about, as well as Erica, I think some of the new changes and what's improving the outcomes is uh, immunotherapy. And there's a monoclonal antibody against ganglioside GD2 that is now accepted therapy for high-risk disease. And it's actually improved survival, uh, or, uh, survival um, from about 46% to 60% at two years which is really significant. The, the outcome longer hasn't been quite uh, evaluated. The, uh, the uh, ultimate survival hasn't been evaluated. But it really does speak to the role that immunotherapy is playing in a childhood disease. We know that immunotherapy is really a big thing now with all cancers because we've had some breakthrough with the checkpoint inhibitors, which take the breaks off the immune system. In neuroblastoma, it's very interesting. The checkpoint inhibitors that have been used uh, have not been successful. And the reason is neuroblastoma is not an uh, immunogenic tumor. And I think the goal in the end and the difference that we're going to make in the end is making neuroblastoma an immunogenic tumor. And then we will talk about real breakthroughs with immunotherapy. But the first breakthrough that we've had in any childhood cancer with immunotherapy 
was the antibody, the monoclonal antibody against ganglioside GD2, which uh, enabled uh, cells to attack the tumor. And I think it's been a, a very nice story, just like NMIC was for neuroblastoma. Immunotherapy uh, has also been for neuroblastoma. Thanks, Tony. It's great to see where things are headed. This is one of the most studied diseases, and we're making a lot of good progress. I want to thank all of you for tackling this difficult disease. It's tough to try to summarize all the complexities in one recording, and we we did. I think we covered all the major things that I and others around the country uh, struggle with and always want to know where things are headed. So I appreciate your time. This has been a great recording, and thanks for joining us. This is Ray Hankey from Cincinnati Children's Hospital, the contributing editor for this audio chapter. You, our Stay Current family, requested more coverage of oncology, and we heard you. Stay tuned for the soon-to-come neuroblastoma Topic in 10 podcast, designed to give you a focused refresher. What else do you want to hear? Let us know on the Stay Current app, Facebook page, or Twitter. And remember, knowledge should be free.